The Bible reading today comes from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, Bob and Gary here? Uh, they're off celebrating their 46th wedding anniversary. I found that out by stalking them on Facebook this morning. Uh, so a big congratulations to Bob and Gary. They're enjoying... Yeah, there's a clap from up there. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, I wish they were here so that we could celebrate it with them, but obviously they're having too good a time. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Frank. I serve here as the music and media coordinator, um, but we were so ably um, and very um, humbly led by um, Gary and his band, I guess, this morning. Thank you, guys. And last week, we heard from Matthew. What a great sermon Matthew preached last week, right? If you haven't heard it, maybe after this week's sermon, you'll go and listen to it as a catch-up. But as a quick recap... Peter's message in the first half of chapter 4 is responding to the question of how do you glorify God with the time that you've been given? Matthew walked us through the answer of be done with the bad and use up the good, right? If you were here last week, throw away that mouldy lemon and make that lemon meringue pie. <laughs> and the reason why we do this is because the good that we do in our life isn't just our own opinion or our own inkling of how the world should go. It's actually us stepping into the way that God has made us to live. And we have Jesus as our example. It wasn't it inspirational. It was aspirational knowing that our God-given purposes as his people and, and we get permission and encouragement to actually live that way. I wonder how many of you, this is rhetorical, how many of you went out and showed welcome to the stranger? Or you served others in the way that you talk or what you do? Or even made it possible for someone else to show hospitality? Did anyone make a real effort to do this last week? If so, how did it feel? Was it just like pure love and joy and was it effortless to live like Christ? Did people show you the gratitude that you thought what you did deserved? Did everyone like honour your intentions and not take advantage of you? 
Um, I'm asking tongue-in-cheek, but also because this is what the rest of chapter 4 speaks to, dealing with the pressure that living as a Christian brings. Because we're in the pressure cooker right now. When I wake up, every second headline from the ABC is another perfect storm heading our way, and thunderclouds are pretty much over everything that we can think of. Our budgets, my budget, is tightening. Our resources are getting thinner. Our world, whether it's on the ground or in the cloud, is more connected, but also more separated from itself. How does that happen? And these pressures bring out ugly things in our sinful nature. Because when we're under pressure, our sinful nature tends to do, I reckon, three things. Maybe more, but three things is a good start. We tend to fight. Right? We tend to try and exert power over other people to secure our own safety to secure our own way of life. Or we flight, we retreat, and we shut up shop so that anything that happens to us doesn't affect us. Or the third one, I heard this recently, we fawn. We roll over and we show our bellies, we fake being vulnerable so that we might keep the peace and deal with the pressure that way. If I'm honest, I'd probably be uh, one for the fight response. Maybe this is being Maybe this is the result of being the youngest of six. You know, there's, there's safety in numbers, but unless you puff out your chest um, and really go for what you want, everything's going to pass you by. Yep, Matthew walked us through the first half of chapter four, and it hasn't given any of these the tick of approval. Instead, we live like Jesus in the strength that God provides. And the world's trouble with this response is that people who don't know that it comes from God don't understand it. Verse 4, they see it, it doesn't make sense, and so they malign. Right? They pressure to act like normal. So the question that comes is when others cause us to suffer as a direct result of living God's purposes in our life, how do we suffer well? I want to acknowledge that some of us here will be really feeling the rawness of what it means to suffer for being a Christian. There might be breakdowns in your relationships uh, with your children, with your parents, with your extended family. Some of you have dealt with this before, uh, and though you move forward, you don't really move on from it. And some of you are sitting here trying to calculate where suffering will come from when it comes, because it will. Or you're here, and it's just one of the things that doesn't really make sense about being a Christian, right? If Christ is, is supposedly victorious over death, why does that mean that I have to put up with the worst things about my life? And I want to say that the place you are in this morning is valid, and that suffering affects everyone uniquely. We're all in different spots. But my hope for this morning is that God would speak to you where you are. So the initial answer to how do we suffer well is to know that what you face does not define you. Because in hard times, we, we really want to know who we are, don't we? It really tests our mettle. But distinguishing between what is happening to you and who you are is really difficult. I remember at the start of the pandemic, I lost a job I'd only had for six months. 
Um, but it immediately made me struggle with the idea of now being unemployed. I was an unemployed person, like so many people were at the start of the pandemic. Even in the short six months of doing this work, it had affected my identity to the point where what I did was who I was. And so Peter urges in verse 12, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. The trials that we face in our Christian life as a result of being Christian are not who we are. Rather, they are because of who we are. They are fiery, not to consume, but to clarify. Not to destroy, but to refine. We're going to go through why in a sec, but this is not a fire and brimstone trial. This is an accurate, controlled fiery trial, because today we purify metals with complex reactions and processes, don't we? I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I assume we do. Um, but in the ancient world, fire was the process of refining. We still use fire a lot to refine metals, especially. There's this great passage in one of the Old Testament prophets that uses an image of refining fire in the same way that verse 12 does, actually. Malachi 3.3, it's on the screen behind me, and it talks about God when he appears. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, who are Israel's priests. He will purify them and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. God's purpose for suffering is never... Let me repeat this, never to separate you from himself. It is God's will that a fiery or refining trial would show you that what you face is not who you are, as impurities in our way of thinking. If we're going to use the metal analogy, impurities in the way of thinking or attempts to be independent from God are taken away. So that's great. That's good to know, but it doesn't answer the question of who are you? If what you face does not define you, who are you in Christ? Well, verse 13 tells us to rejoice because we share Christ's sufferings. That's great. That means that we are following his example. We're following his pattern. It's a confirmation of what we're doing. For those of you who sew or cook, you know what to expect when you follow a pattern or a recipe, don't you? It's the result of it. If you got a pair of pants from a dress pattern or corned beef from Maggie Beer's roast chicken recipe, you'd be doing something wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. It's obvious that a pattern achieves a result. So who we are are those who follow Jesus, and our suffering confirms it. Now, verse 15, we're going we're gonna to do another, a whole another uh, go through of verse 12 to 16, but let me just finish on this point. Verse 15 is a warning of who we aren't, rather than an encouragement of who we are. It says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you suffer for those things, what you face is not who you are. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're a Christian this morning and you're doing things against what it means to live as a Christian, and you are suffering for it, don't count the backlash as validation to your devotion to God. 
what you face in that situation, what you face for not doing the will of God, even if you call yourself a Christian, is not who you are as a Christian. That's a not a confirmation of following the pattern of Jesus. I would say that's making an idol out of uh, either the things that you want to do or persecution itself, and you're disregarding God to go seek it out. But Peter's not done, because in verse 16, he says, Do not be ashamed for suffering as a Christian, which was like a bit like calling someone a Jesus freak or a Bible basher, but rather glorify God in that name. Now, a name, a name's just not a name. A name is also an authority. See, this is what we do when we pray in Jesus' name, is that we appeal to his authority. We pray in his authority. And if you're a Christian this morning and you bear that name of Christ, that is the only name that you bear, the only authority that you acknowledge, and that is Jesus Christ. It's who we are. We're in Jesus. We belong to him. You see, as much as we follow his pattern, it isn't doing Jesus' stuff that makes us who we are. That is actually an outpouring of being in Jesus. Think back to all the language uh, at the start of the letter of unity in Christ. Um, I can't remember, was it Nigel Chris that was talking about uh, the royal priesthood or the holy nation or the living stones? All of these things are a single entity, right? They're all unified. Being in Christ is who we are and it's our way of life. You see, as much as we share his name, we share his suffering. If we truly know who we are, and we are a royal priesthood, we should read passages like this and think of God's purposes for his priests in Malachi 3.3, that when he's done refining, he has his people who will bring offerings of righteousness. We are those people in Christ. You are that person in Christ. If we know who we are, we won't be afraid or surprised when trials come for living as a Christian. Suffering well starts with a firm foundation and a deep conviction of who you are in Christ. No matter how tempting it is to let what's happening to you define who you are. This was a while ago, but I was leading a worship night at a church in town uh, we put a bit of effort to, into it, and it was great. Um, there were plenty of people there. It was We had a meal beforehand. Uh, we were showing hospitality. We were speaking the words of God. Everything that one, the start of 1 Peter 4 tells us to do, it was great. I, I don't know how else to put it, but like you know, it felt like God was in the house. Um, if you know, you know. Uh, and it was great. And once we were done packing up, which always takes longer than you think, once we were done packing up, I actually had a friend's birthday party on the other side of town. And so I hopped on my bike and rode across town and, and ended up at the bar that they were at. Um, and they'd been there for a while. Um, and you know what that means. Um, <clears throat> but also it meant that I'd, I'd missed a lot of the party. And so they naturally they asked me where I'd been. And I told them that I'd been at church, I was doing this worship night, it was great, I was feeling good, um, and do you know what, they just let me have it, they ripped into me, which I wasn't expecting actually, I was on cloud nine, um, and all of a sudden I was brought pretty low, 
Um, they, they ripped into me for, for what I believe, but also just the way that I spent my time um, and the way that I used my energy and my resources, basic, basically everything that you could think of. Um, and it wasn't a great birthday party for me. But as I was riding home that night, I was thinking these things over and over again. I wonder if you've had something similar happen to you where you've, you've had these two things right next to each other. You've really known what it means to live as a Christian. And then immediately after you do that, you get backlash. You come up against something that you didn't think was going to happen to you. But it did, because that's the nature and the reality of living in this world. As I was riding home that night, I realized if I truly believe what I think what I, what I knew to be true before people ripped into me, that God was good, that Jesus had lived and died and was raised again uh, to defeat sin um, and to bring me into a right relationship with God, I had a choice. I had a choice to see those things as confirmation in the way that I live because how you face suffering is your choice. We're going to go back through verses 12 and 16. Look at all these commands that Peter writes down. Verse 12, do not be surprised, but, verse 13, rejoice. What about the statement of truth in the way that Christians live? It's written like there's no alternative. Verse 14, if you are insulted, you are blessed. Verse 15, disqualifies suffering on the count of doing wrong. Let none of you suffer. And verse 16 is a gentle encouragement. Let him not be ashamed but let him glorify. And that's a whole lot of things that we need to start doing, stop doing, or keep doing in the midst of trials. And we can't just pretend that trials or insults or shame just don't exist because, A, this doesn't say that, right? These are all the things that are happening to us. And B, we know that the worst way to deal with a problem is to pretend it doesn't exist. Maybe a shop hat. Who is a kid, or who has a kid, has abandoned a sandwich to the ravages of time in the bottom of the school bag? Yeah. <laughs> the worst way to deal with a problem is to pretend like it doesn't exist. So let's be honest. We'll get surprised. You'll feel insulted. You'll be ashamed. Remember Peter's reason for why the things that we face are not who we are? We're in Christ. That is our foundation of our being. But our being in Christ doesn't elevate us to this spiritual plane that removes suffering. Rather, we're given the choice, and more importantly, the power to face it like Christ. Because if you, if you had to do something about your suffering, um, knowing that no one else was coming and because there was no meaning behind it all, um, there was no example to follow, you would try and exert yourself over it, right? It's the law of the jungle, whatever law that is. It's, it's fight or flight or fawn. These are the things that we try and establish ourselves in a response to pressure, in a response to suffering. It's our natural, sinful response. Instead, Peter is giving us the choice to face trials like Jesus. And here's a question for you. Here's a challenge. Do you believe that Jesus' way that he suffered is beautiful and everlasting? 
This is the challenge that comes out of the text this morning. This is something that we need to believe. And if belief for you, the word doesn't carry much weight, if it's a bit surface level, I want to suggest that Peter even says we need to feel it. We need to feel it. Do you feel the beauty and enduring way of Jesus even as you suffer? Because Jesus suffered well. I'm reminded of the passage that I preached actually uh, last month, 1 Peter 2, that says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no no deceit was found in his mouth. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. You could say he himself bore our attempts to establish ourselves over God in his body on the cross so that we might die to ourselves, to our sin, and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Has it ever been so attractive and life-changing to suffer trials and pressures like Jesus? Let's go through 12 to 16 again. In verse 12 to 13, when fiery or refining trials come, we're not to be surprised, but we rejoice. And how do we rejoice? The verse continues. We rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. And we rejoice knowing that we will be glad when his glory is revealed, when he comes again in power, when we are with him forevermore. How do you feel about that fact, that our rejoicing is to be now as it is forevermore, that eternal life is now as it is forevermore? I was reading um, Abraham Heschel, who's a 20th century uh, Jewish rabbi from New York, and he writes in these little pithy proverbs um, that are very easy to read but very profound, and you kind of have to keep rereading them over and over again. It was talking about the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is all about time. And so he introduces time, I, I love this, he introduces time as eternity in disguise. Time is eternity in disguise. And I think if we were to take this and take it to heart, it would mean that we are to rejoice in the present as we will forevermore. And so for us as Christians, as we endure suffering, this doesn't mean a grin and bear it or you know, a, a stiff upper lip or a keep calm and carry on attitude. This means we see it all as God's will. And we know that we can choose to rejoice now as we will forevermore. Let's go on in verse 14. If you're insulted, think for a moment how people insult you. They heap them on you. 1 Peter 4.4, they heap abuses on you. Do you believe that you should count insults as a blessing from God, not because of the insults themselves, but because the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you? As insults are heaped on you and they, and they give a heavy burden, the, actually the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And that is because people find it hard to accept your witness to being in Christ and the life-changing work of the Spirit in you. 
Maybe in verse 16, if you're suffering like Christians were, for the very name of Christ, if you're ashamed, know that there's glory to be given to God in that name. There's that idea again of being in Jesus. Because his shame was his glory. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection brought the universe to new life. So as much as we share his name, we share his suffering. And as much as we share his shame, we share his glory. The gospel, the life and work, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God in our own sinful hearts, would say that in all the world's history, there's never been a better time that when you're ashamed, you would neither flee nor flinch, fight or flight or fawn. Instead, you would glorify God. And this morning, if you haven't lived in the truth of the gospel, if you come to church this morning without much of an idea of what it means to follow Jesus, or maybe for someone else, it's all a forgotten long memory, a long forgotten memory even, then the choice is right there. A beautiful, everlasting way to suffer well by being in Jesus, following his example, even as it leads to suffering. And for those this morning here where the gospel is fresh in your thoughts, a desire to live a beautiful and life-changing way doesn't actually add up to doing it. If our foundation of being in Christ is firm and our desire to choose the way of Christ firms in us doesn't really answer the question of how do we suffer well. And Peter gives one final answer. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. In Matt's sermon last week, there was this tiny little line, the end of all things is near, which is as small as it is dramatic. Peter concentrates on that same fact in verse 17, where he says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Jesus' death and resurrection has brought us to the end, or the goal, of this world. That God would be made known through Jesus and through the power of his spirit, we would be sent throughout the world to proclaim the kingdom of God. It is time for judgment to begin. Judgment might be a scary word, but here... It is neutral, right? What verse 17 doesn't say is that it is time for condemnation to begin with the house of God. Judgment here is either declaring us in a right relationship with God or not. It's purely judicial. There's no bias. And so the question that arises in verse 17 and 18 is, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a rhetorical question. It doesn't actually give the answer. If we are scarcely or hardly saved, or if it is difficult to be saved, these are all different translations. If the house of God, you know, those who work, sorry, those who know good, God, and work for his good, are still only saved by his grace, what becomes of those who don't know him? See, for the house of God, there's nothing at all that we contribute to our salvation. It's purely the grace of God revealed in the saving work of Jesus that makes us who we are, that changes our being 
there it is again, our being in Christ, to one who shares Jesus' name, his suffering, and his glory. And for those who do not obey and who, not, who are not part of the family of God, the ungodly and the sinner, what is to become of them? It's a haunting question. It's left unanswered right here. But Peter says just beforehand, in chapter 4, verse 5, that they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So by, by means of summing up, if we suffer well by entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator, then here are the big points. Number one, what you face doesn't define you. You have distinct identity as one in Jesus. And God's will for your suffering is not to define you, but to refine you. Number two is how you face it is your choice. We know the example of Jesus and the reality of our suffering, that it is a mark of a new way of living, that it is a beautiful and enduring way, and the Spirit will guide us, will rest on us. Number three, suffer well by entrusting your soul to your faithful creator, knowing that he does the work of grace. But you might walk out of here this morning saying, well, that's all well and good, Frank, um, but they all sound like things that I need to believe or assent to or know, uh, not actually, well, changing how you think, that's different. Uh, but these are all things that I need to believe or know, and these are great. These are truths that the Christian faith are built on, but what if you're a nuts and bolts person? What if you're walking out, walking out of here this morning and going home to family, or you're going to, to work, uh, and you know that you're going to get hit with pressure? Uh, you know that you're going to come uh, into, the cross, into the crosshairs or the crossfire at some point. I just want to offer one small little point of application. Um, do you think you could make a habit of being grateful? Do you think you could make a habit of practicing thankfulness? Not just, not just within yourself, um, although a, a thankful and grateful heart uh, is, is pleasing to God. Do you think you could make a, a habit of being grateful with other people. Speaking what God has done to you and what God is doing for you into um, and into other people's lives and hearing it from other people as well. I've started actually doing this practice myself and it's pretty amazing, especially in times of pressure or when things just are a little bit... Uh, not great. Um, I'll ask someone, mostly little, because I spend most of my time with you. Um, I ask someone, what are you grateful for? This can be at any time, any place, maybe it's around the dinner table, uh, maybe it's in the car, maybe it's with your children, uh, maybe it's with your grandchildren, maybe it's with your parents or your grandparents, friends or any family. What are you grateful for? Just that simple question. And listen to them. Hear what they say. 
if it takes a little while for someone to actually figure out what they're grateful for, that's fine. If, if a child is just grateful for a chocolate donut, that's fine as well. It's that practice, it's that habit of being grateful, of rejoicing now as we will forevermore. Um, yeah, do you think you can make a habit of that? And the best thing about that question is that nine times out of ten, it'll come back to you. Whoever you ask what they're grateful for, it's, it's natural of. Lil will say, Frank, what are you grateful for? Um, and then I will offer it. And then just a way of closing, be thankful to God for it. Acknowledge that it is God who brings every good thing into our lives. In that way, rejoice as you rejoice now as you will forevermore. Let me close in prayer.